You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive Live. I am your host, Bruce Nolan, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back to the people who are live on Locker Room with me, to the people who are listening the following day or the day after as a podcast. Welcome to all of you. Got a great turnout in the room. I think we've got some things to talk about. It's 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, March 11th, and I don't know if you've heard or not, but our favorite team, the Buffalo Bills, happened to make a maneuver that I think impacts this offseason and sets dominoes in effect for not only free agency, but also the draft. And that is they have re-signed linebacker Matt Milano to a four-year, $44 million contract per Sal Capaccio of WGR. The details are still leaking out a little bit, so we don't know exactly what the structure looks like, but we know it includes a $7,000 signing bonus, $24 million guaranteed. So that makes an average annual value of $11 million. I reacted immediately to this particular deal with Anthony Marino from Breaking Buffalo Rumblings, who also does a podcast specifically around breaking news with the Buffalo Bills. And I'll level with you. I'm not entirely sure that you can look at this deal and be particularly displeased with it unless you believe Matt Milano's a bad player. Because you certainly can't look at it and think it's not market rate. Levante David just signed for $12.5 million. Shaq Thompson is $13 million plus. There's another status of off-ball linebacker that the Jets are willing to pay in the $18 million range. We've seen C.J. Mosley at that range, which is ridiculous. So Matt Matt Milano for $11 million a year, average annual value, appears okay for me. I'm not entirely sure what could come out about the contract as far as details and structures at this point that would make me uncomfortable with it. $5.3 million salary first year, which means you're going to have prorated amounts of the signing bonus. So four-year deal, 7 million, it's 1.75 million. 
prorated signing bonus added on top of that? Any additional roster bonuses on top of that? We don't know exactly what the cap hit's going to look like, but it appears pretty reasonable for this year. And at no point does his base salary eclipse during the course of the deal. Again, these are details are per Sal Capaccio. At no point does his deal eclipse a year where he has double-digit salaries, which means when you look forward and you think, okay, he's 25 years old. He's about to turn 26. Four-year deal. There's a very reasonable chance, based on the cap hits, based on his age, that Matt Milano sees the entirety of this deal. And I think that's an interesting point. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want to make sure that I'm getting to your questions. I'm getting to your comments. So before I go into the Brandon Bean thing, before I go into the extension thing and a couple things I want to talk about that I think this deal is important to like stop, slow down, see how it fits into the larger picture. I do want to go to Brent. Brent, you are live right here with me on Bruce Exclusive. What you got for me, man? Hey, how's it going, Bruce, man? I'm I'm really, really thrilled to be on here. You're Knowledge is really great. I love listening to your podcast. But anyway, uh, just two couple things. Um, one personal, one just a question. So this kind of blew me out of the water, right, mm-hmm. that we signed Milano again. And I'm wondering what now – I mean, I am I played offensive line in high school, so and I coached I coach offensive line in high school. And I wanted to know what are we going to do about offensive tackle right now? Because, uh, you know, Daryl Williams – Shored up, you know, the right side of the line. And I'm looking to keep Josh Allen upright. Um, so that's my first question. But I want to th- I want to do one thing real quick. My wife uh, has been a huge Bills fan with me. I'm actually from North Carolina. No attachments to Buffalo. But I just wanted to mention this real quick. It was my birthday two days ago. And I've really converted her to be a Bills fan. And she, for my, uh, for my birthday, got Jim Kelly to send me one of those cameos where he wishes you happy birthday and calls you out wow. and everything. It was so awesome, man. It was the coolest thing ever. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I've, I've told her about the podcast to listen to and everything. So I thought it'd be appropriate to uh, uh, give her a shout out. And, uh, cool. For yeah, no, you should have. So, uh, but yeah, man, um, that was my, my main question is like, what do you think we do with offensive tackle? Is there some way we can get a 30 or uh, possibly like early second round if we tra- trade down? Okay. Well, first off, Brent, I, I, I appreciate the kind words about the podcast. And, you know, this is kind of awkward for me. This whole live show thing, I'm used to being pretty secluded in my little dungeon here where I record my podcast and then release it. And, you know, I'll poke my head into social media just to make sure nobody's yelling at me about it. But really, this has been a wonderful experience for me. It's been a lot better than I thought it was going to be because you guys have been so kind to me. So that, that really means a lot to me. I appreciate you being willing to hop on here and, and spend some time with me and, and chat it up about the Buffalo Bills. Also, you got a wife who's willing to get you a Jim Kelly cameo for your birthday. Um, marry her again. You know, <laughs> go for a go for a uh, a vow renewal ceremony or something because she she knows how to how to do it correctly. So that's that's pretty awesome, man. Um, in regards to offensive tackle, I came into the offseason specifically saying that I thought Daryl Williams was a higher priority than Matt Milano. Not because I think Daryl Williams is a better right tackle than Milano as a linebacker, but I think right tackle is a, a very important position, and I don't like the drop-off. 
from Daryl Williams to who Ryan Bates, you know, like there just doesn't seem to be a lot of good opportunity there. And I mind you, I like Ryan Bates. I'm Ryan Bates Hive. I actually talked about him specifically when I talked about the offensive line and having him get an opportunity to, to play and get an opportunity to compete for a job in as a swing tackle or as a swing interior offensive lineman because I do like him. But that's not my ideal circumstance. I don't want to see that. So for me, I think that Offensive tackle and corner become your main focus points at pick number 30 if you don't address it in free agency. Now, we know from Brandon Bean that he doesn't like to go into the draft with glaring holes. He doesn't like to do it because he finds that it forces his hand. He said this a bunch of times. And if you see his actions in free agency the last couple of years, you'll see that that's not really something he likes to do. So I wouldn't be shocked if there was a stopgap at right tackle picked up someone like Ricky Wagner, I wouldn't be shocked if there was a stopgap plugged in there so that you can go into the draft and truly pick uh, somebody who he thinks is the best player available in the first round. But we have to understand that people draft for need all the time. The Bills went into the 2019 draft really needing a three tech, like really badly. And then Ed Oliver was there and they're like, okay, well, have fun with that Oliver, I guess, because it was a perfect marriage of need and value and team fit and all that stuff. So he will draft for need, but I think he would prefer not to based on his actions. That's my opinion. That's my take on Brandon Bean. If we do pick a tackle at 30, I think Liam Eikenberg is an option there. I think Kevin Jenkins is an option there. I think there's a chance that only one of them, maybe none of them ends up being there. You know, Jalen Mayfield from Michigan, I think that he has a shot to be a player who is a first round kind of fringe first round player. And the thing that is interesting to me about the offensive tackle class is I think it's pretty good. I think this is a pretty good year. If you have to have a needed offensive tackle, it's a decent year to need one. Now it's interesting because it's not a good free agent tackle class at all. So you might have some of those tackles get picked earlier than you might think there might be a run on tackles, in the end of the first round. And I think that's probably worst case scenario for the bills is that there's a run on tackles at the end of the first round. And by the time it gets to you, you're, you're picking, you know, tackle five, tackle six versus maybe corner four. And then you have RB one potentially sitting there. And all the people who really want to pick running backs in the first round are going to be salivating and bad. And I'm going to be sitting there pounding the table going, please, no, please, no, please, no, please, no, <laughs> please don't take a running back in the first round. But I do think that the dynamics of the free agency class at linebacker and tackle and the dynamics of the free agency class at those positions versus the draft class. So it's not just there because teams know at this point in free agency, what the draft class looks like. It's not like they start focusing on the draft after free agency, the way fans do, they know. And I guarantee you that if things that they do in free agency affect the draft and things that they think are available in the draft affect free agency. So I do think that that probably has an impact on what they want to do with Daryl Williams. I would like to see them resign him, but with the resigning of Matt Milano, it feels less likely to me, but let's be honest. I thought Matt Milano was gone. A lot of us thought Matt Milano was gone. John Warrow of Associated Press openly reported that he was going to hit free agency. And when he reported that we were all like, well, yeah, of course he's going to, 
because we had all just pretty much expected that based on Brandon Bean's comments at his end of year presser where he said the whole he's earned the right to test free agency. The same thing he said about Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson. It's not like we didn't have a reason to expect that Matt Milano was going to hit the market. It was fairly easy to connect those dots and think he was going to hit the market. And the probability is when you hit the market, you're not going to come back. So I think that there's a chance that offensive lineman is the pick at 30, but I wouldn't be shocked to see a stopgap tackle. Somebody who's a serviceable replacement level veteran brought in to just plug it so that you're not forced to pick a tackle at that point. Now, don't get me wrong. I I want a corner. (laughs) You guys know me by now. I want a corner, but I wouldn't be shocked at this point. If it's a tackle, we've got Thomas, Thomas, you're on with Bruce. Oh, Hey Bruce. Can you hear me? I certainly can. Uh, Great show. Huge fan. Um, Really appreciate the constant analysis. Uh, I have a question about the draft and sorry to take you off Milano for a little bit here, but uh, it is related in a roundabout way. I'm just curious. um, I'm not hearing a lot about how unusual, um, you know, the last college football season has been and sort of what that means in terms of players who haven't played as much in terms of just analysis of players and, Given that we know that Bean is is, in, I mean, at least I think he's he's quite he's better in some ways at at the later rounds. I just wanted your opinion about how this year in particular, uh, how you think just the COVID year is going to is going to play out in terms of the late rounds of the draft and, and people like Bean, who I think with his staff with 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 his talent around him is able to find nuggets i mean he's shown over the last two years three years if you and four if you if you if you throw in mcdermott into into that analysis um so anyway that that's my basic question and thanks thanks again no problem thomas i appreciate that man and i'm glad you brought this up so don't worry at all about taking me off milano because it is related milano was a fifth round pick at that point of sean mcdermott i think the biggest thing we're going to notice as fans is the variance between the people who are plugged into the league and the people who are not. So when you look at people who are connected with the league and they do a mock draft, it's primarily predictive. And it's designed to predict the things that you might see on draft night. Whereas you have other people who are not connected with the league. For example, me, (laughs) I do a mock draft every year. Last year for Buffalo Rumblings, I'll do it again this year. Uh, Full seven-round, 32-team mock draft with every single pick. I'm usually wrong all the time. I wrong all those drafts. I wrong a billion times. I will still find a way to be wrong more often this year because there is going to be a higher amount of variance between what the average person thinks is going to happen and what actually will happen. And the reason that is is because it's hard to peg down values for some of the players that opted out because of COVID. So you're going to have a lot of, wow, I didn't think he'd go that high. Or, wow, I, I, I can't believe he fell that far. You're going to have a lot of that. And the reason we can't believe it is because we don't have the constant funneling of information coming our way, indicating and giving us hints 
as to what the league thinks about these players. So I would guess that if you were going to put a number on the amount of quote-unquote reaches and the amount of quote-unquote steals that you feel are present over the course of the draft, this will be way more in 2021 than it has been previously. Because quite frankly, our, our perception of reaches and steals is farther off. There won't actually be more reaches and steals, but our perception will be farther off than it ever has been. My perception will be farther off than it ever has been, which is really important going into this. If you were wrong 20% of the time or 40% of the time or 60% of the time, just crank it up a notch for 2021. You'll be more wrong more often. So you better be used to being wrong. Now, thankfully, those of us who have been married for a long time, we're used to being wrong. So we're kind of like already prepared. Long marriages will prepare you for 2021 and the draft. So it's really important. If you have somebody who's kind of pushing you a little bit, you think, oh, maybe that guy hasn't been married very long. So it's really important that we understand that there may not be more steals and there may not be more, you know, value picks. There might just be a bigger perception problem for our status, I guess, for our point of view. I think that the teams that are going to have an advantage are the teams who have organized and experienced scouting departments that will help them out. In this case, the Bills. The Bills are one of those teams who can have an organized scouting department who's experienced. They have former GMs, former assistant GMs. They have a great front office. And I'm still to this day shocked that the entire Buffalo Bills front office is coming back. I'm absolutely floored. Usually when you have a general manager who is an executive of the year candidate, like Brandon Bean is, when you have scenarios like that, you have a tendency to lose his right-hand man or his left-hand man. Now, the Bills already lost Brian Gain one time. They lost him, and he came back. So maybe that was the, uh, you know, maybe that was the loss that they were going to experience, and maybe they're not going to experience another one. But I kind of thought that they might. So I think that those are the teams that are going to have a better time at this. I think teams like the Cincinnati Bengals, who have a notoriously small scouting department, are going to struggle more because they really need more boots on the ground, metaphorically speaking, to be able to talk to insiders, be able to get information about these players, because you have to start to fill in the gaps because you might not necessarily have gotten to as many games and talk to as many people. And you need to be able to fill in those gaps in your knowledge. And I think you might have scenarios where you're going to have some pretty significant swings in player value because you have a smaller sample size. If you only have 19 tape on somebody, you don't have 20-20 tape on them, then two teams could value that person very, very differently. Think of it this way. Think about like the Jake Locker scenario. If you remember correctly, going into Jake Locker's final year at the University of Washington, Mel Kuyper said he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. And then he kind of had an underwhelming year. He ended up going in the first round. But things changed on him. The same thing happened with current Buffalo Bills backup quarterback, Matt Barkley, who people thought would be the number one pick of the draft. And he came back for another year. Matt Leinert was the same way. Think about how significantly their value varied by one more year. Now realize that a lot of the players that are coming out in this draft don't have that one additional year. So the variance will be significant. It will be significant. And it's going to be, quite frankly, it's going to be an adventure. 
I'm going to sit, I'm going to get my, all my popcorn ready. Terrell Owens would be so proud of me. I'm going to have all of my popcorn ready. Metaphorically speaking, I don't actually think we're having popcorn. My wife told me, I think we're doing like a deep fried theme for the draft. We're going to call it the deep fried draft. I'm going to try a bunch of different things deep fried. Like I think we're going to do like Buffalo chicken egg rolls or something like that. It's going to be, it's going to be a good time. So any, if any of you follow me on Instagram, you know how much I love to um, eat food. So I'm going to be thrilled about that. So one of the things that I think that the draft thing and the Milano thing sort of get tied together in is an interesting point that I want to make about Brandon Bean that applies now that wouldn't necessarily applied as much before the Milano extension. I would like to read to you the list of players that Brandon Bean has decided to resign versus the players of note that he has decided to let walk. So Brandon Bean re-signed the following players. Deion Dawkins, Tredavious White, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Matt Milano. The players he let walk, Jordan Phillips, Shaq Lawson, Kevin Johnson, John Miller, Preston Brown. Some of those names you don't even remember. You might not have even remembered John Miller. You might not have even remembered Preston Brown before I said it. But there were discussions about re-signing Preston Brown. There were discussions about re-signing Jordan Phillips and Shaq Lawson. But one of the things we talked about on the podcast I did earlier this offseason, the Book of Bruce, was don't re-sign average non-specialists to market deals. Don't do that. Because if you do that, you're probably going to get bad value because you could get an average non-specialist in the draft for way, way cheaper. Resign good players. But if they're not good, don't get emotionally attached to them. If they're okay, if they're you know, fine players, ah, he's fine. Then if they want a really low contract, sure. But don't re-sign fine players to fine contracts. I was me on the Quentin Spain deal when they signed it. I was like, okay, yeah. It's okay. It's not bad. It was $5 million a year. It was, wasn't terrible because it was fairly low, but that didn't last very long. But Deion Dawkins didn't blink an eye of that deal. Tredavious White didn't blink an eye. Jordan Poyer didn't blink an eye. Micah Hyde, nothing. Matt Milano, I'm good with. And the thing I think is interesting about these deals is that we don't have all the details about Matt Milano. But every single one of the other deals, I I went through them with a fine-tooth comb. And I didn't see a year on that contract that stuck out to me like a sore thumb. A year where you go, oh, that's that's ridiculous. That's that's a dummy year. That's a fake year. I'm not saying voidable years. I'm saying like it spikes for some ungodly reason because they're not good with money. And the cap hit spikes some crazy number. You go, well, he's not going to play on that contract for that number. So it's clearly not a four-year deal. It's actually a two-year deal because in year three, it spikes to some odd godly number. None of that is present in Brandon Bean deals. And they're not five, six, seven-year deals. They're four-year deals. And every single one of them, I look and go, okay, I think that that person could play out that contract. I think Matt Milano could play out the entirety of this contract. I think Micah Hyde could play out the entirety of his. I think Jordan Poyer can play out the entirety of his. 
And what that means is that there's a future out there that doesn't include fat amounts of dead cap that are going to screw this team up moving forward. Because one of the things that gets you in trouble is re-signing someone to a fat extension and then cutting them a year later. And you have to deal with all the guaranteed money and the accelerated signing bonus coming back and smacking your dead cap. And then you have a problem. So not only has he correctly, he being Brandon Bean, identified the players to resign and the players to let walk, but all of the deals are deals that can feasibly be played all the way through without, without consequence. I like that. That makes me happy. I enjoy this. There's no wasted money. There's no wasted energy. Those of you who follow me on Twitter, you at least know a little bit about me, you know that my passion is football. Love football. I am also a mixed martial art guy. I enjoy it. And one of the things I think is interesting is about the conservation of energy in mixed martial arts. There are certain times when it's not good to expend a lot of energy. Well, I mean, the clock's running, you could win. No, 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 it's not good to expend that energy. It's wasted energy. You have a limited amount of gas tank and you have to pace yourself. And I understand that sometimes that makes people upset and frustrated, but that's the way I feel when I see these deals from Brandon Bean. I don't see bloat. I don't see wasted money. I don't see wasted years. I don't see a ridiculous average annual value that could never possibly be lived up to. So he's picking the right players and he's signing them to the right deals. So I think that that's really interesting. And before I go on to the next point, we do have somebody on the line. And it's Anthony Marino Marino from Breaking Buffalo Rumblings. My good man, I feel like we just talked. (laughs) How you doing, Bruce? Dude, it's a party all the time. Disco balls, dancers, the whole thing. Hey, can, can I actually ask you a quick MMA question? Because mm-hmm. actually, as you as you mentioned, being a fan and not running out of gas, are you a fan of the movie Warrior? With I have never seen the movie Warrior. Oh, my God. Bruce. I, I know. I know. It, it I'm tie, sorry. It ties in, one, it ties in completely to the point you just made. So we'll move off of that since you've never seen it. I thought for sure you were referencing it. But you, it's a it. must sorry. watch for you and the wife. But So my question is, if the Bills are to go someone other than cornerback, and pick 30, and you're looking at their second-round pick, who are those second-round corners that you like? If the Bills can't get someone like Eric Stokes, who you've talked about before, who are those second-round targets? Because I think that's something that I could see the Bills going offensive line in the first round, maybe even going running back. I know that we've talked about before, but who are those second-round cornerbacks you've got your eye on? I think the name that immediately comes to play is Ifayatu Melifonwu. I think he immediately comes to mind from from Syracuse. I think both the Syracuse corners, quite frankly, have a shot. I think Trill Williams is a good player, and I would be completely okay with him. I think Tyson Campbell from Georgia sticks out as being somebody potentially in the second-round range. I think those are players who have a shot. I am not in on Sean Wade. A lot of people think because I'm an Ohio State guy, I'm in on Sean Wade. I think there's a chance Sean Wade is a safety. I think Aaron Robinson's probably going to be gone. By them, but Israel Mukwamu has a shot to be there from uh, South Carolina, who I really like as a boundary corner, as someone who could potentially kick inside and cover tight ends. So I would be okay with any of those players at second round corner. I don't think that 
your opportunity to get an athletic upgrade is off the board if you don't take one at 30. I would love to lie to you and tell you otherwise to try and convince you and kind of sway Bill's Mafia into corner at 30, corner at 30, corner at 30, corner at 30. <laughs> you know, But that would be a lie. The truth is I do think that there are some players that are going to be there in the 60s that I think can walk in day one and start for this game. Well, every time I look at the players that are available, and again, it's all mock drafts, and as you were saying before, right, it'll – uh, who's going to be a reach, who's going to be there. There'll be plenty of those surprises. But as you go through with it, there's a lot of talent that is still there in the second round, which mm. is going to be interesting to see what the Bills end up doing. Yeah, and it may be one of those scenarios where they decide to take a tackle at 30 because of how good they feel about the corner class. We know that people do that, right? We know that GMs do that. They've openly talked about it, that they make picks based on their perception of the depth of the class and, hey, I think we can get one of those later. And they talk about drop-off all the time. Well, we traded up to get this guy because I felt like the drop-off after him at that position was really significant. They talk about this. We know that GMs do this. We know that Brandon Bean does this. So if he thinks that there's a chance you can get a starting tackle at 30 but not in the 60s, and he thinks you can get a starting quarter in the 60s and at 30, then that might sway him toward taking a tackle at 30. So we know that GMs do it. We know Brandon Bean does it, so I wouldn't be shocked if he did it, by any means. You're the man. Catch you later, man. Okay, moving along. Ryan, you're on with Bruce right now. What you got for me, man? Hey, Bruce, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, first off, I'll just like to preface this with I'm a South Carolina Gamecock, so McQuamu I think would be a great fit for us. Sadly, I don't think J.C. Horn will be there. I think he would be a great fit, but he looks like a top two or three uh, corner in this class. But uh, my question for you, um, I like to say that I think Milano is a positive to this defense, and I think that was a great signing when it comes to both fiscal responsibility as well as his talent level. But to go back to a talking point after the AFC East Championship game, we kept hearing about how the Bills have to make roster changes to beat the Chiefs. Um, while I personally think we should mainly focus on winning the division again, I think it's naive to think that McBean isn't thinking about beating top teams in the East. Mm-hmm. And since our Super Bowl window is now open, uh, Joe Marino has talked about specific players on the roster who can improve and make a, a pretty substantial jump in our talent level, mainly Ed Oliver, Edmonds, Knox, etc., but I know your philosophy in hedging possibilities to maximize opportunity. So when it comes to philosophy, what do you believe we should do to improve this team to get over the next hump, independent of individual players making an improvement? Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much. First off, I love the question. I am convinced. I, I remain convinced that I have the best listeners in Bill's content creation because the stuff that you guys bring to me on a daily, weekly basis with the emails and the questions like I just got just proves that you've got your heads in the right places and you're asking intelligent questions that require me to dive in and you make me work for it, right? You make me think about it. And that's incredibly value because it shows that you're not, you're not being lazy with your thinking. So I really appreciate the question. I think that the first thing that comes to mind for me and it's going to come to mind for me because of my pre-existing biases toward coverage. The first thing that comes to mind is you have to be able to be multiple against the Chiefs. You cannot say, I'm going to play this thing, that's it, against the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes is too good. Andy Reid's too good of a play caller. 
They have too dynamic of a weapon. And Patrick Mahomes can play outside structure too well in order for you to say, well, I'm going to do this one thing and that's going to be the thing I do and that's it. And because of that, you need to be able to play a little bit of man. So philosophically, my first thing is I want better athletes at corner two and potentially at nickel. I'm not hugely against Taron Johnson by any means. I know that everybody is loving Taron Johnson now after they were hating him halfway through the year because he had two pick sixes at the end of the year. And now we all love him, which is great. But I admire him in run support a lot more than I admire his coverage ability. So if I could get a better cover nickel and a better cover two, I'd be really happy with that. And specifically, I want someone who allows you to run man coverage and kind of splash that stuff in. It's one of the reasons why I'm not on board with the Richard Sherman acquisition. That seems to be something that people are putting together because I really think the acquisition of Richard Sherman crystallizes your defense into doing more zone, quite frankly, because Richard Sherman's not a man cover corner either. This is why I've been pounding the table for William Jackson. I think that if you want to play a little bit of press man and some combo coverages, I think you have to be able to have someone who can run and mirror with receivers in coverage and stay in phase. And that's William Jackson for free agency. And that's why I've been pounding the table for if I had to Melifonwu and Eric Stokes and people like that to be able to draft a corner high and do those things. So philosophically, the first thing is you have to be able to do multiple things on defense. You can't just say, well, we're going to run cover three. That's it. We're going to do that thing. You're, you're facing too good of an offense with too good of a quarterback and too good of a play caller to just say, we're going to do this one thing and that's going to be it. The other thing that I think is on offense, you have to be able to run the ball effectively. I'm not saying run it a lot, but at least needs to be something that's annoying for the Kansas City Chiefs. And for that, I want a better offensive line. And I think that the Chiefs' ability and Steve Spagnuolo's ability to scheme up pressure, because Steve Spagnuolo is, you know, he's kind of a mad scientist. He, people forget he was the Giants' defensive coordinator when they took down the vaunted New England Patriots 2007 16-0 offense with Randy Moss and Wes Welker, and Tom Brady put up a billion, billion yards. So Steve Spagnuolo knows how to concoct a scheme and you need to be able to block it up. So I want improvements at corner to be able to be more multiple on defense. And I want improvements on the offensive line to be able to at least have the running game be an annoyance for them and at least be able to take advantage of circumstances where they maybe overload a blitz and you can gash them for a big game. So philosophically, those are the two things that I want to see done in the offseason where we can make inroads toward the Chiefs. Mike in the comments section says, I fear Star will retire. What would be the implications on the cap and on the field? So from a cap standpoint, retiring is the same as cutting, which is bad. Because Star Latule actually costs the Bills more money if he's not on the roster. So if he retires, that's bad for the Bills. Retirement and cutting are exactly the same from a cap standpoint. So that's bad. On the field, it's bad as well. Not because Star Latule is an upper echelon one tech. He's not. But he's a passable, reasonable one tech. And quite frankly, reasonable one tech is far more effective than we got 
from that same position in 2020. We didn't get reasonable play in 2020 from the one tech spot. Reasonable is a pie in the sky compared to what we got from that position. So that would immediately turn that into a very, very significant need for me. And so I would not be pleased at all because I am not a believer that Harrison Phillips is starting one tech in this league. I know that he was coming off an injury last year, but he's had enough knee injuries that he's frequently coming off an injury. And I think he's a rotational player at best. And I, he would fall into that category of don't re-sign average players, reasonable players to market value deals. He's not going to be somebody who I'm going to pound the table for re-signing when the deal comes up, barring something huge at this point. Luke says, Bruce, do you see any big nickel type safety targets in the draft? Yes. Yes, I do. I think that the obvious one is Hamza Nasser Dean from Florida State. That comes in a lot. I think um, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa comes up a lot. However, I don't think he's going to be there at 30. A lot of people have mocked him to the Raiders. And I don't, I don't know, maybe. A lot of people seem to think that maybe the Raiders for him. But I don't think he's going to be there at 30. If he's there at 30, I think that becomes – that absolutely becomes a question. But Hamza Nasruddin is a little bit like the Jeremy Chin this year. I was a big Jeremy Chin guy last year. There was kind of two camps, the Duggar camp and the Jeremy Chin camp last year. And I was team Duggar – sorry, team Chin, not team Duggar. And so if Joe Buscalia from The Athletic, if his sources – were correct, which and he talked a lot last offseason about Duggar being a potential target for the Buffalo Bills. And the Patriots took him before the Bills had an opportunity to take in the second round the pick they ended up spending on A.J. Epinesa. So there's a very reasonable possibility that Buffalo was looking toward that particular athlete but didn't get him last year and so could potentially get him this year. That's a possibility for sure. And I do think there's a couple in the draft that fit the overall theory. Andy Anderson, my good man, you are live on with Bruce right now. Long time, no talk. Dude, how you doing? Good. Um, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So something that I noticed, and this is kind of an almighty take. I think it's probably somewhat probable. I think the Kansas City Chiefs are going to have a fall off uh, next year in their offense due to their offensive line decreasing in quality. They just released three starters um, from today due to cap cuts. And I saw, I think it was Adam Schefter tweet out, they have only one returning starter from their Super Bowl win. And he opted out last year. So I think that's possible. Andy brings up a really, really good point. And that is that there's a chance that the Chiefs struggle a little bit if they're not able to deal with their offensive line. Now, having a quarterback who can make plays in the second phase of the game is important, especially when you don't have an offensive line. We saw in the Super Bowl that Patrick Mahomes was able to make a couple plays even when the line was breaking down. Now, I do think the interesting thing about Patrick Mahomes' scenario is that the Chiefs do have Lucas Niang from TCU, who I liked last year as an offensive tackle, who they said opted out, as you talked about. And he's coming back. So that's kind of like an addition this year. And we know that they're going to probably draft some players in that spot. But I'll tell you what, them spending a first-round pick, I'm going to take the opportunity to get a little dig in here. 
them spending a first-round pick on Clyde Edwards-Alaire doesn't look so hot now, does it? He wasn't even a significant factor in their Super Bowl run. And he played well in the Super Bowl itself. But if they would have taken an offensive tackle with the idea that they've had some injury issues to Mitchell Schwartz and to Eric Fisher, they'd probably be feeling a lot better now. So, you know, I'm just saying, next time you think about running back in the first round, you know, maybe there's some things out there that indicate maybe you should go elsewhere. So just going to take an opportunity to take a little, you know, nice little dig in there at running backs in the first round. But the other thing that I think is interesting about the Kansas City Chiefs scenario is that you have a definition discrepancy here when you talk to fall off. When you say, well, they might fall off. Fall off to what? Fall off to a playoff team? Fall off to a wild card contender? Fall off to a non-playoff team? So I think that the definition of fall off is interesting because I don't think any team ever is a Super Bowl favorite every year. Like, I just don't think that that's a sustainable level. That doesn't mean you're going to win it, but I don't think that's a sustainable level. So if they fall off, but they're still a playoff team who can do well in the playoffs, then that's good enough. Because basically what you do is you take playoff teams who can do well, and then from there it's, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Ball bounces here, ball bounces there. You know, Phillip Rivers completes a Hail Mary. The Bills don't win a playoff game. Then they don't go to the AFC Championship game. A lot of balls have to bounce your way. You need a little bit of luck sometimes. So as long as they don't fall off to can't make waves in the playoffs, then they'll be okay. But I do think they're going to probably make some significant investments there this particular offseason. But it's going to have to be draft capital. Because they got the Patrick Patrick Mahomes deal starting to come around. And they're going to need to get cheaper labor at that position. And he says in the comments, remember people were talking about a Seattle dynasty when they went to -to back-to-back Super Bowls. That's right. It's amazing how fast dynasty changes. And so Seattle is still a good team. They made the playoffs. As long as you have Russell Wilson, you got a shot to make the playoffs and make some noise. But I would argue Pete Carroll's holding the back. You've heard me talk about this before. I'm not a Pete Carroll believer. I don't think Pete Carroll is a great coach. I put him in a tier below Sean McDermott when I did head coaching rankings last offseason. And I got lit up like a Christmas tree. People from the Seattle section of SB Nation were not not too pleased with me for the slander of Pete Carroll. But – I think that if Sean McDermott was the Seattle coach, they would have gone farther than if Pete Carroll was the Seattle coach. So not a huge fan there. So there's one thing I do want to talk about before we get out of here. And that is that Brandon Bean is knocking down the pins that were set up by Sean McDermott. I think sometimes we forget about the 2017 NFL draft because we're so far removed from it now. But Sean McDermott, was the one who had final say over the roster at that time. This was during the whole one voice theory. We forget about that too. Do you remember when the Bills convinced us it was going to be a one voice policy and Sean McDermott was going to be the one voice? And we all now know that that was a crock of hooey because what they actually were doing was just making sure Doug Whaley wasn't talking publicly because now that Brandon Bean's here, all of a sudden it's multiple voices. No longer a one-voice policy. Sometimes it's just PR. Sometimes it's just a crock of hooey. And in this case, it was a crock of hooey. 
But if you read Ty Dunn's excellent go-long piece regarding the hierarchy at the time of the 2017 NFL draft, it was clear at that point McDermott had control of the roster. McDermott had the final say. So the 2017 NFL draft has had three players that are good starters for the Bills and got extensions from Brandon Bean. Tredavious White, Deion Dawkins, Matt Milano. We're just going to go ahead and pretend like Zay Jones didn't happen. We're just going to like pretend like that wasn't really a thing. But Tredavious White, Deion Dawkins, Matt Milano. If you get three upper-tier starters from a draft class, that's an absolute slam dunk. That is a home run. That is a grant. Whatever other sports metaphor you would like to use, it's a knockout punch. Just pick one. Getting three starters who end up getting second deals from your team is an absolute, absolute win. And Sean McDermott was the one who drafted them. Sean McDermott set up the pins. Brandon B knocks down the pins. This is one of the reasons why having coordination between your head coach and your GM is so important. You have to value the same things in players because if Brandon Bean doesn't feel about Matt Milano the way that Sean McDermott does, you no longer get as high a value out of Matt Milano. Instead of getting eight years out of Matt Milano, you now only get four years out of Matt Milano. Same thing with Deion Dawkins. Same thing with Tredavious White. So I think that's really important to point out. The fact that Sean McDermott was lining up the pins and Brandon Bean was knocking them down. So Luke says, I might have missed it because I was late to the party, but does right back right tackle become our primary draft focus since William likely walks with the Milano sign? Yeah, I'd say right tackle and corner. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's, it's completely cool. Luke, I mean, I'll forgive you for being late to the party. You know, just... Make sure you send me the check. No, I'm just kidding because I'm not going to tell you where I live because FBI and whatnot. But yeah, that's I would absolutely agree with that. I absolutely think that right tackle and corner become the most important things on this team. Vastly more important than tight end. Listen, I understand people want a tight end. I get it. But if Daryl Williams walks and if Levi Wallace walks, who hasn't been tendered, we are not talking about this right now. Right now, Dane Jackson is your starter. At CB2. Right now, he's your starter. I'm not saying he couldn't be a reasonable player. He absolutely could be. Do you want to count on that? Do you want to bank on a second-year, seventh-round pick who had limited playing time during his rookie year as your CB2 across from Tredavious White? So you know you're going to get targeted out to Wazoo because you're playing on the opposite side of the field from Tredavious White. And you want it to be Dane Jackson. I'm not saying he couldn't be a good player, but as we talked about earlier, you want to bank on that? I don't want to bank on that. Levi Wallace hasn't been tendered. I think in, in our head, Lee, we think Levi Wallace is coming back, and he might. But at the time of this recording, he hasn't been tendered, and he hasn't been re-signed, which means he could walk. Luke says, could we pull off signing Verrett, Jason Verrett? Um, Jason Verrett, I'm sorry. I actually mispronounced that name more often than you think. But Jason Verrett is someone who I think is going to get paid because he's finally shown the promise that he expected to see earlier in his career, but he got banged up for all of it. 
And so I think that that, that tag of, hey, he was really promising and he's finally starting to show it is going to get him, get him some money. So I personally think he'll get paid more than William Jackson, but I could be wrong. I'm not opposed to it by any means. I'm not opposed to Jason Brett at all. And he says, rank the restricted free agents by least likely to most likely to be back. Okay, I'd say most likely to be back would be, I think most likely to be back would Levi Wallace, to be honest. I think that they really like Levi Wallace. I think Sean McDermott has talked about Levi Wallace in the past in very, very glowing terms. I think that um, when he says that's what it means to be a Buffalo Bill, that's a really strong statement. So I do think that just their particular their particular fondness for him, I guess, makes it likely that he would be back on a deal unless he thinks he can go somewhere else and not have to fight for it. Um, Ike Butker is someone who I think has a reasonable chance to be back. But if he thinks he's a starter after getting an opportunity to finally play and the Bills want to use Ryan Bates in that spot, then I think he's probably least likely to be back. And Corey Bohorkas is somewhere in the middle. So I say Levi Wallace, most likely. Ike Bucker, least likely. Corey Bohorkas, somewhere in the middle. Because the thing that's interesting about Corey Bohorkas is the restricted free agent tag for a punter is the same as the restricted free agent tag for any other position. But it changes your value proposition because punters are fairly low paid. So $2.1 million for a restricted free agent tag is reasonable punter money all of a sudden. So that's the thing I think that would cause him to potentially be gone and for the Bills to pick up a vet minimum minimum, or potentially pick up a late round draft pick or an undrafted free agent at punter. So that's my opinion on that. Folks, we went 50 minutes. We did it. We addressed everything. It's been a good time. As always, thank you so much for being here. I enjoy your comments and questions. It makes this go a lot faster. I am not so arrogant as to assume that I really enjoy like talking to myself. I mean, you might think I might do that because I talk to myself on a weekly basis for the podcast, but it is kind of nice to have you guys steer the conversation and be able to have a chat with you. So thank you very much for being a part of this. I appreciate it. And until next time, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.